All right, so for our scripture reading this morning, we'll be reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We just finished this series on um, what is the gospel. I did a very quick overview of the book of Mark. Again, asking the question, what is the gospel leading up to the resurrection and then the next couple weeks afterwards? And now this week we will get back into 1 Peter and Lord willing finish 1 Peter probably sometime uh, mid-summer. So to get us back kind of into the groove of 1 Peter here, I want to remind us of the last sermon, which again was about seven weeks ago that Pastor Rusty preached, because it'll help kind of set the stage. Really, uh, it was a little unfortunate where we had to kind of cut into 1 Peter, because the last sermon on 1 Peter really started a new section. Uh, It really falls underneath the same title uh, and same theming in the book of 1 Peter. So I want to refresh our memory in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, but we'll be primarily working through 13 through 17 this morning. So let me begin in verse 11 of the same chapter which Jeremy just read for us this morning. He says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So just in in a sense of, in a goal of kind of resetting our minds here back to 1 Peter and for today and for the weeks going forward, I want to remind us of a few key things from this passage that sets us into this next few weeks and this next theme of submission and authority and how that looks and plays out in holiness as it relates to the unbelieving people that we walk day in and day out with. The first thought is this, we're aliens. Peter makes it very clear that this is not our world, this is not our home, this is not our final destination, this world is not our residence. Peter reminds us that we're here just for a while. This place is temporary. And yet, what, in part, what gives reason for this exhortation, for this reminder, is that we hold on to the things of this world so tightly as if this is all there is. Things of comfort and power, things of ease, things of materials, preferential things we hold so tightly upon. As if this world is all we have. I wonder how many of us in this room realize how much, how many of the things that are in our hands right now, in our minds' hands and in our hearts' hands right now, that are of this world. I'm not even talking about things that are grotesquely evil, but talking about things that are horrifically immoral. I'm talking about the good things even of this world that we hold on so tightly to as if this is all there is. You tend to see when people are holding so tightly onto the things of this world when we begin to get worked up about silly things or things where in reality, we should be considering much weightier concerns. Right? It's like we talked about over this weekend and thinking about a child and the anxiety of a child over what appears to us to be a seemingly uh, 
not stressful event. For them, it really is a stressful event. It really is, to them, that's all they can see. And part of why are they upset in that moment was because they don't realize there is more beyond their current moment, their current experience, what they understand. And and the same thing is true for us. We get worked up because we think that this is all there is. We lose sight. And as Peter said, uh, I'm sorry, as Jesus said to the author of this letter, Peter himself, Jesus says to him, you have set your mind on the things of this world and not on the things of God. I've watched people, even in my own life, where we let our minds be gripped by the things of this world as if we were not sojourners, but instead, this was a place of primary residence for us. We hold, I I believe, we hold too tightly to this world because we hold so loosely to the next. We have our minds so firmly planted and fixed on the things of this world because we're so oftentimes blind to the next. We're to abstain from the things of this world, and we are to do it to the glory of God among the unbelieving world. All right, so we're aliens. This world is not our home. Second thought, we are soldiers in a foreign country waging war for souls. Our soul, other souls. Again, you can, I would encourage you to go back and re-listen to Pastor Rusty's from seven weeks ago. But we are soldiers in a foreign country waging war for our souls. The passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. Do you understand this? Right now, this second, there is a war being waged against your soul by your flesh. Right now. Mine too. One of the saddest realities I I think I experience, at least thus far, as a pastor, is interacting with the people of God and the other person lacking the sober-mindedness to realize that their passions are at war even in that very moment. Every moment, there is a war happening against your your soul by your flesh. A full-on assault. Are we sober-minded enough to realize this? I Pastor Rusty said, there is a war of desire that is fought on the turf of your heart. It's fought for control of your soul. Again, the war, uh, in quote there, then going on, the war is fought in every situation, every location, every meeting, every circumstance, every statement you say, every relationship you have. Again, right now, this very second, your heart and my heart, there is a war of desire going on and it's raging and we would be utterly foolish to ignore this reality. We are soldiers in a foreign country, sojourning for a while in the midst of a war for our souls. And Peter here calls us, and as we move forward, we are to be people who are transformed by God's glory and transforming others by His glory to His glory. So we're to be transformed for His glory, by His glory, and about the task of transforming others by His glory to His glory.
I, I wonder, if you think about this, we're to be these kind of people, <clears throat> I, I wonder how many of our thoughts following Sunday night's meeting were transformed thoughts by His glory, for His glory, birthed out of a desire to be a part of His transforming glory. We all have to ask that question. Why? Because there is a war raging for your soul, and any time heat is applied, the dross begins to come out. Listen, my heart as well. This past week, there's things that have come up out of my heart that in many ways is because of the heat applied Sunday night that I've had to repent for. I've had to ask God's forgiveness for. That I've had to make things right for. Are we people who are transformed by His glory to His glory and doing likewise in others, for others, for God. I wonder about things like <clears throat> our relationships at work or with neighbors, with our children, with our spouses, with our friends. Are these focused on the transforming grace of God's glory for His glory? Particularly those who are not followers of Jesus. We ask this question, we're going to ask this question a lot. How do we live holy lives in the midst of unbelievers? What does that look like? How do we do that? What does it look like? How do we do that? How do we live in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify God? Listen, lots of people can live good deeds. How do we live good deeds in such a way that they glorify God. That we are people who treasure Christ and give witness to His gospel before the world. So with that said, let's go to 1 Peter 2, verse 13 and verse 14. He says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it, it, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The first thought I want you to write down is that we should live seeing everything as it relates to God. Live seeing everything as it relates to God. This is not a foreign concept. I feel like it's maybe a bit of a broken record, but nevertheless, we must be reminded of this all the time. Live seeing everything as it relates to God. Peter says, for the Lord's sake. We do this for the Lord's sake. I'm calling you to this for the Lord's sake. For His glory. For His good. For His name. We struggle, right? We struggle with this because we tend to see things only as they relate to us. We compare others to ourselves. We think about outcomes of situations as they relate to us. We worry about what will happen to us. Now we like to dress it up, I'm sure, nicely and say, well, I'm just thinking about this. I'm just trying to be wise. I'm just caring for these people. But, and maybe that's true. But we need to ask the question, is it just simply putting a nice facade on our internal desire to think only about life as it relates to us. Ask this question in the midst of whenever you're thinking through an event and, uh, or a situation or a conversation or, or whatever it is, ask the question, am I okay with dying? Am I okay with death to self right now in this situation, that will tell you very quickly if you are thinking about the situation as it relates only to you or to God. Am I willing to die for God's glory right now in this moment? 
It's easy for us to think about life only as it relates to us. Again, I I want to bring up again our meeting from Sunday. In your processing through it since Sunday. And for the record, those of you who weren't here for the meeting, we talked about this idea of merging with another church, an exciting opportunity that we have. So if you're like, what's this meeting he's referring to? I just, I don't want you to feel like it's an inside joke or you're not a part of the conversation or, or something horrible happened or, you know, something like that. So just, uh, it, it's an awesome thing, but it's something we have to work through. So in your processing through since Sunday, how much has your concern been centered around you as it relates to you. I was so blessed and encouraged by like Tiffany's prayer and a couple comments that were very selfless thinking in terms of how do we care for this other church? How do we lay our lives down for them? How do we bless them? How do we be a people who comes alongside them? Listen, I pray if we're thinking about, think about life as it relates to God and not just as it relates to us, then I pray that what drives our conversations in the future are questions like the following. How can we best glorify God in this? Where will we struggle to glorify God in this, pastor? How can we glorify God in caring for another group of people such as these ones? How can we help those around us relate everything to God as we walk through this? Where do you think we'll treasure the wrong things? Listen, those are the questions of mature followers of Jesus Christ. Certainly, there are other things that we need to talk about, other questions we need to ask. But what is our primary concern? What are the primary thoughts coming out of our hearts? Concern for me, I just preached on that last week. Well, the walk of repentance looks like a walk of a death to self. And remember, Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Are we concerned about life as it relates to God? Him at the center. Again, listen, I I am preaching to myself just as much as I am to anybody else. Now, why do we tend to see things only as they relate to us? Just, I think in general, because our glory is at stake. Our reputation is at stake. Our comfort's at stake. Our power is at stake. Our influence is at stake. Our, Our own desires are at stake. We're kind of like the little kid. I don't know if you've seen this happen. I've seen this happen many times, particularly in my house. But we're like the little kid who walks into the room, right? And he surveys the room. And he sees this kid playing with that toy that he wants. And this kid playing with that toy that he, he wants or she wants. And this kid playing with that toy. And, and he just kind of watches. And when each of those kids are kind of turned around and doing something else, or they, for one second, turn to a different toy, right? What do they do? They, they just grab that toy, right? And then they just they walk, and then they, they go grab that, that toy. And, when that per- and then what do they do? They take all those toys, and they go sit in the corner. And what do they do? They hoard all the toys themselves. They set the toys out around themselves so that they can play with all the things that they have just oriented around themselves. We do the same thing. It's just more sophisticated and more subtle. We reorient life. We reorient thoughts and try to structure them around ourselves. We want everything in the world to submit to us, right? We want to be God. This is an epidemic of eternal consequence and importance. Again, there's a war raging. But Peter tells us, we think about this question, how do we know if we are orienting life around God's glory? Again, thinking about this idea of how are we to live amidst unbelievers particularly. And the first thought, the first exhortation he has for us here 
is to submit to every human institution. To submit to every human institution. All right, now, so let's, let's stop for a sec, because we need to ask the question, what is submission? What is submission? I, I, I fear that we largely define submission as simply doing what I'm told when I'm told to do it. Doing what I'm told when I'm told to do it. That's not submission. Submission is a heart posture. Submission is a disposition. It's a proclivity. It's a it's a tendency of the heart. It's a, it's a, uh, uh, here's the way I wrote it down. It's a disposition to follow authority and an inclination to yield to its leadership. So I would argue, if you want to ask the question, am I submissive? You need to think not just what is the outcome of the actions or the situation, but you need to think more about when I'm po- when when the opportunity to follow is presented, what actually comes out of my heart. Because that in that moment, what is the initial reaction is actually showing you what the disposition of your heart is. What actually comes out without your having a chance to control it or to clean it up or to make it look pretty. That's going to show you what the disposition or the inclination of your heart is. Submission is a disposition to follow authority and an inclination to yield to its leadership. Submission, put it in other words, is seeking the will of those in authority over you. That would be the outworking of this. So it's not just doing what you're told if you happen to be told it, but it's actually a desire to follow a desire to yield. You know what this means? It means an outward following while quietly or secretly grumbling is still not holiness. It's a disposition. It's an inclination. So that means that submission includes not just the outward actions, but the posture of your heart throughout the entire process. That is submission. Now, I think it's easy at this juncture to limit what Peter is saying to the idea of civil government, because he is certainly talking explicitly about civil government. But Peter includes more than civil government at this point. Again, it's present, but Peter is not limiting this idea of submission to civil government. Other things fit this. Remember, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to what? Every human institution. Every human institution. So examples like parents and children church officers and members, authority structures and businesses, educational institutions, sports teams, voluntary organizations, etc. Every human institution. Now, the second thing I want you to see here as well is that it's more like this submission and these institutions are for, more re- for a greater reason than just because of sin. These institutions are in place not simply because of the fall. The need for authority is not just because of sin. The need for submission is not just because of the fallen place in which we live. If you go back and read a passage like 1 Thessalonians 4.16, there is authority among sinless angels. So they have submission and authority, and it has nothing to do with sin. There is also eternal authority in the Trinity. 1 Corinthians eleven three. The Son submitting to the Father. 
Certainly no sin present there. So authority and submission is not because of sin, nor does authority and submission have to be affected by sin. Like it can be good on its own and it can be pure. And our authority and submission can one day be like such as well. Not riddled by, not affected by sin, both in the exercise of authority and in the striving for submission. See, God has established such patterns of authority for the orderly functioning of human life, and it both pleases and honors Him when we subject ourselves to them. Indeed, the idea of authority and submission will carry on for all of eternity for His glory and for our flourishing. But we tend to think authority, we tend to think of it generally in a negative sense and submission in a negative sense. And we also tend to think of it, it's only something because of the brokenness of this world that I have to submit. Adam and Eve were called to submit long before they ever ate from the tree. Indeed, their act of eating from the tree was not just an act of of rebellion and non-submission, but what they were saying in their act was we don't need to submit. We're good as our own authority. But it's not just because of sin that we have authority and such. The next thing what you see is that it's even a submission to authority even when it's corrupt. Having a disposition, an inclination of submission to authority, even when it's corrupt. We think about this. Peter is writing these words, and Nero sits upon the throne. Nero, who later would kill Peter. And Peter says, submit to every human institution. And just in case you wonder if he's including the emperor, he says the emperor later, right? Even when it's corrupt. Now, very quickly, a, a quick a side note here. We need to think through, clearly there's, there's lines to be drawn, right? When we are required to do something that is sinful. But we have to be careful that we don't draw the line in such a way that it includes our preferences, Again, every human institution, we're called to submit. And we'll be careful that we don't draw the line to include both moral issues where they're saying do something that's sinful. We certainly submit to a higher authority, but that we don't draw the line, you know, moral issues, preference issues. Instead of drawing the line here, we draw the line like right over here and and then down and Peter is saying we should have a disposition to follow authority and an inclination to yield to its leadership, yes, even when it's corrupt and evil. It wasn't like Nero was fine at this point and then turned a new leaf you know, uh, in a bad way the next day. And Peter's like, oh man, it's too late to rewrite the scriptures, daggone it. I get it. This is hard. It's hard. It's hard enough when you have the good and just and right exercise of authority. Let alone when you have poor, bad, evil exercise of authority. But Peter is calling us to a posture of submission. Now, again, submission doesn't mean you have to agree with everything. But submission is a posture of wanting to and a posture of following in the process. Rightful submission to every human institution is ultimately submission to the supreme glory of God. I want to explain that. Rightful submission to every human institution is a submission, is ultimately submission to the supreme glory of God. This is the theological basis for the command, for the Lord's sake. 
for the Lord's sake. This submission takes place for the Lord's sake, for His glory. Your submission to every human institution is a life lived ultimately for the supreme glory of God. Our submission imitates that of Christ's submission and in effect glorifies the Father just as Jesus glorified the Father. I mean, think about Christ's submission even in front of Pilate. Even unto death. Listen to Paul, Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Do you hear that? Every governing authority has been instituted by God. Even the worst of the worst. Now here's the deal. Think about this, right? If he's instituted this, and it's for God's sake, and we struggle with this disposition of Submission to authority. What this means is that when we lack a disposition of submission to any human authority, we're actually exercising a disposition of rebellion against God. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. When we live in a heart posture of submission to any human authority, though, we exercise submission to God's supreme glory. How's that for purpose? How's that for a reason to submit? How's that for a reason to say, yes, I don't necessarily like this, but I will follow Help me to like it. I want to. Even in the midst of a corrupt leader, we are saying the one glorious behind this corrupt leader is God. And so my disposition to follow this poor leader is just simply saying to the world how much I trust the glorious and sovereign one behind this leader. I'd argue how much more so does it say to the world when we submit in a righteous way to a corrupt or poor leader. Think about what it says to the world around you. It says at least that God's glory is supreme. It's supreme in your life. And Peter says that when we do this, it actually exposes their ignorance. It shows them who the glorious one is. Verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Listen, here's the deal. God's way of stopping their slander is not to get up and defend yourself always, but to actually show a disposition of following because it shows your belief in the supreme glory and sovereignty of God behind that leader. It says that even though this leader has failed, even though this leader is not perfect, I trust and desire and love the glory of God. And this is how Peter says God shuts their mouths. God's glory on display through our disposition of submission shuts the mouths of those who oppose God. Now here's the question, right? How how in the world will we ever do this? How will we submit in these situations, and how we submit to His supreme glory through leaders, especially bad ones. I think the only way is to live as free slaves of God. Free slaves of God. Yes, it's a paradox. We live as free slaves of God. What is a paradox, you might ask? It's a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. A paradox. Free, yet slaves. 
Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. But I thought you said I was free as people who are free. Now you're saying I'm a servant of God. All right, let's press through this. I don't know about you. I have felt some of this. I'm sure it's present in this room as well, that God's commands in this passage seem oppressive. Maybe this call to submit to authority feels oppressive. The reality is, is that we ultimately fear oppression from God. Back to the war raging within us. We feel oppressed by God. I would say if you don't feel oppressed by God, then you've probably not read enough of the Bible. Meaning, God demands much of us. Absolutely he does. And rightfully he does. At our root, God's authority, because of our flesh, feels oppressive. We feel like he's holding something back from us. Like there's something better for us on the other side of the fence. Why else would we turn or submit to other ruling desires in our hearts? Our submission to those ruling desires in our hearts are the same as us saying God's rule is oppressive. I must submit to these because that's the better option. Why does it seem oppressive? Why? Why Why does it seem like there's something better on the other side? Because the Bible helps us explain this, to understand this, because we're slaves to the destruction of the flesh. We're slaves to the passion of the flesh. At least we were at one point. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and it goes on and on and on, basically saying the same thing. You were slaves to the passions of your flesh, to the destruction headed towards that path. The destruction of the flesh, this is the course of the world, and it heads toward destruction. Remember what Jesus said last week as we read in Matthew 16, verse 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's he saying? He's saying that the path the flesh leads to, namely saving your life, and we talked about that that could look a bunch of different ways. This path that looks like saving my life is actually the path to losing my life, namely the path to destruction, namely, Jesus is saying, it's a suicide mission. Like it may feel good for the moment, it may feel justified right now, but you can't see the semi-truck coming down the road that you're standing on. It's a suicide mission. Now, the wonderful thing in Ephesians is that the verse doesn't stop with your slaves to this and this and this and this. It goes on to verse 5. And even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. What is he saying? He has set you free from the slavery to the flesh and made you alive unto Christ. We've been set free from our former way of life so that we can become slaves of God and live in obedience to him rather than slaves to disobedience and destruction. If I could put this in a simple way, you and I are most free when we are most enslaved to God. We are most free when we are most enslaved to God. There's two options according to this Ephesians passage, very briefly, dead in sin, alive in Christ. That's the two options. It's not dead in sin and alive partially in partial sin. It's not dead in sin and a different kind of deadness in Christ. It's dead in sin, slave to sin, or alive in Christ, servants to Christ, Alive, not just alive in Christ, but also alive to Christ. Alive to His glory. 
Look what Peter says in verse 16. He says again, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. See what Peter says. Free people are God's servants. Do you see that? Free people are God's servants. We are His slaves. He is our master. So in Peter's mind, these two things go together. They fit together. Free people, slaves to God. I am most free when I am most serving God. When you are serving yourself, you are a slave unto death. And it leads to forsakenness. But when you are dying to self and serving God, you are truly free. You are truly alive. Can you see where this begins to take place in this journey towards submission to authority, particularly authority that is poor? Now, Peter is saying we don't have the freedom to just do wrong. We can't use it as a cover-up. We do not escape from service, just a change in master. Though we are more greatly free than anyone apart from Christ can ever be. Again, it's a paradox. True freedom to do what we want to do comes in entire submission to God as His obedient servants. If you want to write something down, write this down. True freedom always results in the great joy of doing what's right. Right? I mean, that's in the context of God's glory and His work inside of us, but nevertheless, true freedom always results in the great joy in God of doing what's right. Now, here's the question. When, When I set out to do this like this is hard how is it that we recognize and cherish this new freedom in God how do we treasure this freedom in God in such a way that we could then actually submit in a in a place and in a context that might even feel oppressive how do we how do we do this the reality is how do we, we can't make our hearts cherish We can't make our hearts honor, love, fear God. Why? Because we honor, love, and fear ourselves most. But look at the build. Look at this last phrase in verse 17. Peter says this, Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's just, just work through these very quickly. First of all, honor all men. What's he mean? Be courteous, respectful to all people. It doesn't mean to just do what they want. It means to do what is best for them. Right? Honor means not just to do what they want, but to do what is best for them. But to honor all men. Now it's interesting here, he says honor, and then he increases it, we'll get there in a second, love the brotherhood, and then he increases it again to fear God. But then where does he go for the emperor? The emperor who was to be worshipped as God. What's he say? Right, say, honor all men here, love the brothers here, fear gods all the way up here, and then what does he do with the emperor? He puts him at the level of all men. Honor the emperor. It's, it's, it's like this very subtle, passive jab, appropriately so, at the emperor. No emperor, you're not equal with God. So he puts him at the end of the phrasing here, but then he puts him conceptually at the level with all men. Below even the brotherhood. Below the body of Christ. So honor all men, then love the brotherhood. What does this look like? So he's saying we have a higher obligation to fellow Christians 
not only respect them, but also to show strong, deep love to them. Now, the primary place we do that is right here in the covenant body of Christ. Now, let me ask you a question here for a second. How do you know you love the brotherhood if you don't ever go through anything hard with them? Like, how do you know it's not the good things of life and this place that you love, the things that fit your preference, and not the actual brotherhood? The actual people. Maybe we love our conveniences or our preferences better. Maybe you love the way you feel when you're here. But how do you know you love the brotherhood? I don't want to oversimplify the answer to this, but it's when you die to self and put them first. That's how you know. When I have to die and think more highly of them. We're commanded to love the brotherhood. And then he says to fear God. Not just honor God, not just love God, but to fear God. You should not fear unbelievers. You should not fear the emperor. You should not fear any man but you should fear God. So what is fearing God? Like what Piper said, that God is in your mind and heart so powerful and so holy and so awesome that you would not dare to run away from Him, but only run to Him. Fearing God is not another covenant requirement. It is the way you keep the covenant it's the way we receive christ it's the way we come to christ we come humbly reverently we come without a presumption of deserving anything we come trembling think of psalm 51 broken and contrite working out our salvation tremble tremble if you ever have any inclination to walk away from god For there is only destruction that awaits us apart from Him. Oh, how we should fear to leave the Lord. To tremble in His presence, thinking, oh, how marvelous it is that He would ever receive us and show us grace and mercy. It's so true that so many of us do not fear our earthly desires that lead us away from God. You see, we will see and enjoy freedom in God when we fear Him supremely. That's where Peter drives us to, this supreme fear of God. Don't fear these other things. There's a rightful place and a rightful response to them. You see, you will only fear Him supremely when you see the destruction that awaits outside of Him. The path to forsakenness. The death that pride steers us toward. But when you rightfully fear Him and know that He died to save you from that path, to save you from forsakenness, to bring you close to Him, and you see that Jesus suffered the death of the path of which you were headed down, that He took the pain, He took the destruction for that path, He took the wrath of God that was deserved for our choosing of that path, and He took it all. When we rightfully fear God and believe in our soul that He died to take away the ultimate fear of punishment and forsakenness, that the wrath is gone, that the one sovereign behind this leader 
is the same one who died in my place. It's then that you can live for the sake of His glory. It's then that you can cherish your new identity as a free slave in God. It's then that you will live a holy life in the midst of unbelievers. Fear God, but know He is merciful and cast yourself upon His great mercy. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be a people that have not the presumption that we deserve to be in Your presence. But we live as a people believing that we only come into Your presence because of Jesus. Father, that we look in these opportunities to live before people who don't who don't understand your glory, who don't behold your glory, that that we get to live in a way amongst the brokenness of this world that says even in the midst of the challenges, the sinfulness in my life and the lives of those around me and the lives of the leaders above me, I have a chance to live in the midst of all of that saying, There is a God who is glorious behind it all. And my act of submission can shut the mouths of those who would oppose you, God. May we, by your grace, not be the people who need our mouths shut. Living and rebellion like the rest of the world. But may we, by your grace, show what true submission looks like. Not just doing what we're told if we happen to be told to do it. But living as people who have a disposition of submission, not because the leader is some spectacular person, but because the one who put the leader in place is all glorious. Father, I pray that you would bring this about in us this morning. Father, that you would at least water the seeds. That you would move us in a way that we could live holy lives amidst unbelievers so that they would glorify you. For you deserve it. We do not. I love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.